Hi everybody, JP here with a quick introduction for today's episode. Now, listening to the conversation you're about to hear, I was struck by so many things in it, but in terms of contextualizing it for all of you, I'm reminded of something from my childhood. There's a traditional formulation of the Christian act of contrition uh, with a phrase that has always stuck with me. It ends with the speaker resolving to avoid sin, but also to avoid the near occasion of sin. Now, that occasion of sin is often understood as some external situation that will lead one into temptation, usually thinking about sins of commission, something we talk about on this show a lot, but we perhaps more frequently talk about sins of omission, those situations not where you do some bad act, but where you fail to do the right thing. Now, fortunately, these scenarios can often be commonplace and not on the level of life and death per se. For example, someone at my level, you're in surgery, you see your attending's hand brush something that it shouldn't, do you speak up and tell them that they might be contaminated? Of course, we all should, and we all do. But there's always the temptation not to rock the boat, the temptation to keep quiet, the temptation not to draw the attention and displeasure of everyone in your community, often your superiors, focused in on you because you're the one who spoke up because you're the proud nail that now might feel the hammer. Today's guest in conversation with Dr. Wang tells a compelling story of a situation far greater than just a contaminated hand in surgery, where he felt the call, he felt the impulse, he felt the duty to step up, come forward, and say what was right. Within a scenario, and within a community of many people who knew what he knew, had seen what he had seen, and did not choose to come forward, and did not choose to speak. So with this said, and in that context, we give you Dr. Wang talking with Dr. Bob Henderson, a surgeon who played a major role in the Dr. Death saga, which likely any of our listeners will be familiar with, but if not, the story and his role within it will be discussed during this conversation. We are immensely grateful for Dr. Henderson to be on the show, speak with Dr. Wang, and share his insights about his experiences through this process. Uh, Personally, I deeply enjoyed listening to this conversation, and I'm sure you all will too. Let's get to it. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Nursery Podcast. I'm actually in Salt Lake City, or Park City, if you will, in Utah, and I came to the Selby Spine Clinic uh, here, the meeting, and it's my first Selby Spine, and I am absolutely delighted that I ran into uh, a very notable individual. Uh, I'm actually here with Dr. Robert Henderson. Do you go by Bob or Robert? Bob. Okay, Bob Henderson. Um, and Bob is, is a, you're a vascular surgeon, right? I started out as a general vascular surgeon, and then in that was in 1979, and uh, then I worked uh, with Dave Selby for the next over the next eight years uh, as an access surgeon. I helped develop some exposures to the anterior and thoracic lumbar and thoracic spine, and then after eight years, I actually uh, uh, went through an 18-month uh, fellowship in spine surgery. Oh, really? Uh, like a like an orthopedic fellowship. 
Correct. So well, okay. Well, I studied with both orthopedists and neurosurgeons. Right. So so let me see if I got this right. So you trained as a general surgeon forty years ago, right? Correct. And then you do. If for the listeners that that aren't surgeons, uh, spine surgeons often utilize an, an access surgery, meaning if you go through the front of the body instead of the back, there's a lot of critical stuff there: vital structures, organs, blood vessels. And so, like, I use a cardiac surgeon in Miami. And um, so, so then, but most of these guys don't do extra training. They just do the exposures every day, right? Correct. And so what drove you to do that extra training? Well, it was interesting. Over that eight years, because we were doing uh, a lot of anterior surgery, which hadn't been done before, and we were pulling a lot of people out of what I call the human wastebasket. They were people who had had one or a multitude of posterior surgical procedures on their backs, hadn't really done well. And it was because their pain generators hadn't been addressed. Mm-hmm. And they weren't addressed until we were able to go anteriorly and, and uh, provide additional stabilization, take out pain generators with, from the disc itself, which we've learned has some chemical uh, impacts on, the, on the, literally the pain system, the pain nerves, re- uh, receptors. And we were getting... I mean, nearly miraculous results in mm-hmm. patients who couldn't have been helped before. So we started having visitors come locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally uh, on a weekly and almost daily basis. So I had a lot of exposure to a lot of different uh, people, both orthopedic and neurosurgical. And after eight years, everybody kept, I kept asking people, what's it take to be do spine surgery as far as training. Well, the orthopedist would say, um, well, I did very little of this in my, in my uh, residency, um, but, uh, you know, we know how to fuse bones and, and fix bones, so that's what we're doing. The neurosurgeons at the time would say, well, 90 per, 95% of our training is in spinal cord and brain uh, anatomy, and only 5% actually in addressing the mundane bread and butter uh, back pain that walks in through our door every day, which turns out to be 95% of our patients. Right. Um, so it was a unique period of time. The CT scan had been around for 8 to 10 years at that time, uh, MRI maybe for uh, 5 or 6 years. And so Spine surgery as a specialty was really just at the threshold of uh, of development. Yeah, so it's very interesting because, you know, when we do spine surgeries, and I, I try to be very open with my patients, going anteriorly, as you said, or anterolaterally is extremely powerful because you don't have to deal with the spinal cord or the cauda equina, and you can access a lot of the disc, and you see it differently, and it's very powerful. But these are also surgeries that... If there is uh, if there is an error in execution, can actually be lethal, right? You can actually bleed. I, I believe you can bleed many liters in a minute, right? Which right. which gives you no time for like, uh, you know, reassessment or calling even someone into the room. Which is why we often use exposure surgeons because you guys are experts in repairing uh, the blood vessels like the aorta or the vena cava if you tear it, or even the smaller veins can bleed tremendously, like the iliolumbar vein, right? Correct. So, so you're doing these surgeries for lots of doctors, right? Lots of, or mostly in one hospital? I was at the time. Um, 
for several years, I was, uh, it was expanding the number of physicians I was helping. Um, and if you're good, this is what I found. Like my exposure surgeon, Dr. Abdullah, goes to like 40 hospitals because he's good. He's in high demand, right? Correct. But word gets out. Everybody wants you to help them. And it's, it's, it, let's be honest, it's also very lucrative, right? It can be lucrative because spine is so lucrative, right? It can be. Yeah, I mean, I'm not suggesting that's why you right. do it, but it can be. And so some vascular surgeons, you don't have to run a clinic if, if you just do this, right? You don't have to take care of the patients often. The spine surgeons often do that for you, right? Yeah, when I went into it, I, was, I, I stayed very involved in both the preoperative evaluation and the, and the postoperative care. That's excellent. So you, so you were like a spine surgeon, essentially. Correct. Yeah. So in the course of your 40-plus years, I mean, how many surgeons, meaning ortho-neuro, do you think you've actually worked with? Like, in other words, you've operated with, right? Not just people that came to visit your place. Um, um, it's got to be dozens, right? Oh, over a hundred. Over a hundred. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. so you work at different hospitals, and you'll see them, and you get to know them, and all that. Yeah. Well, I'm counting the people that came and visited us, and, uh, and so it's probably a couple hundred. Um, wow. O- over the years, got uh, exposed to what we did and how we did it. Yeah. And and you also are close to Texas back, right? But you don't work with them, right? No. Yeah. I initially helped uh, train some of their uh, general and vascular surgeons who are doing exposures. I did that years ago. Because they do a lot of anterior work, yeah, right? Yeah, because Rick Geyer's been on our podcast talking about professional athletes and, you know, obviously uh, the whole thing with Tiger Woods and all that. Yeah, absolutely. Right. They got big into the disc replacement. Right. And, so forth. and Tiger had an anterior surgery like we're talking about through the front. And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting. So the, the thing about this is, is that if, if you are in the operating room with so many different doctors, ortho, neuro, you really kind of get to know like the diversity of people that do this, do, they, they practice this trade or craft, right? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you learn the good, you learn the bad. And, uh, and that's the way it was with my fellowship because I was an experienced clinician and an experienced surgeon in my fellowship. Uh, I funded my fellowship by myself mm-hmm. and, uh, but I, and I would go spend six, eight, 10 weeks at one location and, and then move on to another location. And uh, by the time I was done in getting my spine privileges when I came back after 18 months um, in the various hospitals, uh, I had to have letters of recommendation where the letters of recommendation would say, you know, uh, you know, he's very competent and Mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And we probably learned more from him than he learned from us, which wasn't true, at least from my perspective, wasn't true. I learned a lot at yeah. each location I went to, both positive and negative. And, uh, and obviously they were learning from me because I was a little bee going from one location sure. to the next, next location and spreading the pollen around. And uh, so it was a very symbiotic, uh, advantageous, uh, uh, profitable knowledge-wise uh, experience for everybody involved. Now, you, you mentioned the letters, and this is an important thing. This is a really hot-button issue. Steve Giannata, who is, I, I got married at his house. He was the chairman at USC. Uh, he was the head of the American Board of Neurosurgeons for a period of time. And on our podcast, I think it's in, in one of the earlier episodes, he discusses that um, his friends who are like CEOs in Los Angeles won't even write a recommendation letter because it's too much liability. If it's laudable, if it's a good letter and the person's not good, 
you know, then you could be sued by the employer, right? right? If it's a bad letter, then you could be sued by the employee. And so he says the recommendation from their legal counsel is if you're a person like Elon Musk or something like that, just don't write any letters. Don't ever write a letter. Because if you're on the wrong side of it, you've, 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 you've lied in a way, right? You've, misre- you've misrepresented, I should say, is probably a better way to put it, right? But this, this is something that you, you've, you're faced with because, I mean, if a surgeon comes and asks you to help them, and their, let's say, maybe their intentions or indications aren't good, or let's say their technical skill is inadequate. How do you deal with that? I mean, you're, you're being asked to help, and then, you know, you, you don't really want to work with this person, right? Because you're an ethical person. Correct. And, and we face that situation uh, multiple times. We never had any problems with people coming to observe uh, because we were just helping to spread knowledge and expertise. Mm-hmm. Um, we did have problems, uh, not problems, issues, and whether or not we'd ever let people participate in the surgery. And we had issues after we got to know the individuals, uh, and we made, we made our own individual uh, decisions on uh, whether or not to allow them to come back. But that, te- that comes after the fact, right? You're not, you're not working off of hearsay, like somebody said, this guy's not a good person, you just don't work with him. You actually work with them, and then you see the result, right? Correct. So you've- both, in the, both in their thought processes, uh, decision-making, uh, in, in the clinic, mm-hmm. and, and pre-surgical, and their post-operative uh, care, we discovered a lot in discussions, because it wasn't an exposure just in the operating room. I mean, there was time in the doctor's lounge. We'd right. go out to dinner afterwards. Uh, a lot of times they'd spend a day or two or a week with us. And uh, so we had time to assess both on a formal and informal basis. So how do you, uh, I mean, you're a senior surgeon, right? You're very experienced. You've done tens of thousands of surgeries. Correct. So you, you're confronted with, let's say, a more typical case of someone who just isn't, up to snuff. I mean, do you find yourself more in a situation where you're like trying to teach them and mentor them? Or is it more often like, well, you know, I probably just don't want to work with this person? It can be both. It can be both. Uh, And for literally a variety of reasons. Yeah. And you just discern that. Um, What to you is, uh, so there's, there's all these different types of ways that you may not want to be involved in a case. Um, Indications could be one. Technique. Um, inadequate care of the patient. What is to you the sort of the most, what turns your stomach the most? When you, when you, because spine surgeons, they come in all stripes, right? Is it right. the person who does unindicated surgery or is it the person who's just kind of like a butcher in the OR or is it the person who doesn't take care of the people afterwards? Like what, what really gets under your crawl? You know, interesting, the, probably the number one thing that bothers me is when I run into people who really don't want to learn. Oh, it's their attitude. Yeah, yeah. it's their attitude. Uh, you know, on the surface, they may say, okay, I'd like to come watch you. I'd like to do this. Or would you come into the operating room and, and observe me or uh, help me? But then you get there, and they're, they're just really not open to any new ideas or any new techniques. Um, and that bothers me. So you're kind of an optimist. I mean, that to me, that reflects optimism because it's almost like you're saying, well, if you're open to the ideas, then 
then, then we can improve things. Correct. Right? As opposed to saying, right. well, you're just never going to be a good surgeon kind of thing. Right. Right. And I don't like, I don't like wasting my time. Uh, I like, uh, I mean, I learn as much or more from each and every individual I've ever been exposed to from, from a surgical standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, either positive or negative. Uh, always learn something. Always learn something. And, and you just continue to evolve. And I guess that's, that's the more appropriate verbiage and term is that uh, I like to work with people who continually evolve, uh, literally day to day. So the first lecture, and, and I know you were there, uh, on, on the first day of this meeting was a great lecture from a doctor from the Florida Orthopedic Institute. I'm in Miami, right? So we, we share some similarity in terms of patients, uh, patient type and practice pattern, if you will. And he gave an amazing talk about iatrogenesis. I, I think you caught that, right? About the type of work that's being done, whether it's just unindicated or the, the quality of the work. Um, the, I mean, it's, it, was, it was a little bit shocking, right? If you're not if you're not acquainted with what we do, to see that this is actually going on. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's some individuals who get out of their training programs and, uh, and they never evolve. They do everything exactly the same that they were taught. Uh, and I think, it, I think it goes a little deeper in that. I mean, there are individuals who, I mean, all these people are bright and they're smart and, and intelligent and they've, proven that time and time again as they've come up through our scholastic system and, and uh, into medical training. Mm-hmm. But then there has to be the ability to think independently. Instead mm-hmm. of just knowing the answer to the questions, uh, you've got to know you've got to know the background of why the question was asked in the first place mm-hmm. and you've got to know how the answers were developed. And, and that's what makes you a good scientist, that's what makes you a good clinician, that's what makes you a good technician. Well, you know, I've actually found that, you know, I've had a lot of graduates, a lot of fellows, residents, and medical students. I've found that, in neurosurgery anyways, there are a large number of people that actually devolve after training. And, and I guess what I mean by that is, and it's very alarming to me, it's, it very much concerns me, and it's usually related to uh, greed, you know, doing things that you shouldn't do or operating for the wrong reasons. And, um, and it sort of paints our specialty in this very negative light that I, I, I'm very hard on patients in the sense that, you know, I'll tell them straight away, every single person I've operated on of the 7,000 people has heard before surgery, don't ever have spine surgery. And on the other hand, I truly believe in spine surgery and, and I've seen their miraculous effects as you have, right? But yet we are contending with this in the environment. Every human's heard that in America. Correct. So how do, I mean, how do, we, how do we face that? I mean, you, you've combated, I would tell you, and I'm going to go out on a limb here because I'm open on this podcast, you've confronted human evil. Correct. Evil behavior. Maybe the person's not evil. I don't know. I'm not, I, don't, I have no insight into their brain, but the behavior is absolutely evil. It's unquestionable when you see it, right? Yeah, when you're, and you're referencing the Dr. Death uh, situation and Chris... Christopher Dutch. Well, he's the most extreme example, right? right. But this right. is, you've become, I mean, you've done uh, this country a public health um, mitzvah, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. By, by putting yourself out there. I mean, at, at great personal risk. Yeah. Yeah. I, I felt I didn't have any choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it wasn't a decision for me. 
I was just confronted with the circumstances and then had to deal with the circumstances. I mean, uh, we literally had uh, a surgeon in our community who was uh, maiming people and killing people um, by the surgeries he was performing and didn't have any remorse about it, didn't have any, uh, any sympathy or empathy about it, didn't take any responsibility for him being the problem. And, uh, and we realized, I realized, realized that quite quickly. He was moving from hospital to hospital, um, literally because of uh, the lack of, um, I guess, responsibility um, of the hospitals he's been at. And it wasn't the physicians who had that lack of responsibility. It was interesting. Uh, at every hospital I'm aware of that he had operated, uh, the physicians had uh, disciplined him. The physicians had at every. The physicians okay. had through through the proper channels. Hence the moving. Hence the moving, but um, he was disciplined severely at multiple places, and every time his disciplinary actions that had been uh, prescribed by the physicians on staff was compromised by the legal counsel at the top level. Not, not Christopher's legal counsel, but the counsel for the, the hospital. hospital. Wow. In the hospital. And they, they did this for, for a variety of reasons. If, if a hospital disciplines a physician on staff and restricts privileges uh, or, or prescribes any disciplinary action that lasts over 30 days, it should be reportable to the National Practitioner Data Bank. So when it goes through committees and goes up to, through the medical exec committee and gets approved and then goes to the board and gets approved, it goes to legal mm, counsel automatically. and purview over that. Wow. And they're the ones who change it. I hate lawyers. <laughs> I, gotta tell you, I hate them. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's a real problem. And so they'll say, well, instead of making that 45 days or 60 days or 90 days, make it 28 days so that we fall below the 30-day limit to have to report it to the National Practitioner Data Bank because we don't want that physician bringing charges against us against the hospital against the hospital because that's expensive so they do that in in Christopher Dunch's case um, they wanted to throw him off the staff well by the time it went through the channels and then got up to legal legal said why don't we just let him uh, sign a letter of resignation withdrawing from the staff and that way we don't have to report them we just moving along we don't have yeah. to work they kick it kick the can down the road yeah it's like the lemon dance for the the, the movie waiting for superman about the teachers the bad teachers get moved around because the principals don't want to fire them right it's too it's, hard it's exactly the same yeah. thing so you you've seen a diversity of, of surgeons i'm sure some of the surgeons you've worked with maybe once or twice you're like this guy's not a good guy but there was something different about this case, right? Because it was pretty immediate that you started to recognize the problem, right? Correct. What, what was the difference in, like, I mean, look, I, I've got a lot of surgeons in my community. I'm like, that guy does horrible work or unindicated surgery or is unethical or whatever. But then, you know, we don't really go after them, right? But there was something different about this case. Yeah, everything's on a spectrum. 
uh, everything's on a bell curve, so to mm-hmm. speak. And we all know what a bell curve looks like. And, and, and if you're within two standard deviations of a bell curve, I think you're not, that includes 95% of, of the population you're talking mm-hmm. about. Well, Christopher Dunch was way, way out on the end, uh, all by himself in that uh, the surgeries he did, he, he almost had, uh, other than the fact he actually did the surgery within the uh, actual corpus of the human body, mm-hmm. that was as close as he came in some cases to hitting the anatomy. He that he was in the body have. somewhere. Yes, yes. The fact that he was able to get blood um, was almost remarkable when you look at how, how his total lack of uh, ability to identify the proper anatomy. And, uh, I mean, he couldn't tell the difference between bone and, and soft tissue. Um, in the case that I picked up, I mean, he put an implant in the, uh, through the psoas muscle into the retroperitoneum that was supposed to be between the vertebral bodies. That, like when you guys do the exposure, those are the easiest cases. It's like you present it on a platter for us and we just cut the disc and put the implant in, right? It's so easy. Absolutely, absolutely. So um, I thought he was an imposter when Oh, you thought he wasn't even a surgeon? I thought he wasn't even a physician. Because that happens. I thought he wasn't even a physician. Wow. Um, And we had actually had a situation in Dallas 30 years ago where over at Parkland Hospital System, the county hospital that's a system. Bit, that's UT Southwestern, right? That's a right. big hospital. There was a guy running around with his white coat on and his scrubs yeah. and doing physical exams on... They on, just had one in L.A. like this. Did they really? Yeah, guy yeah, put the coat on, walked around, Yeah. usually usually molesting women. That's usually what it is, And right? that's exactly what this yeah. one was, too. Um, so, so I think I might have met Christopher at one point, but... I don't really know him. And when I was listening to the podcast, it occurred to me, among the other things, and I was talking about robotics yesterday night, right, that he just seemed to not, he seemed to be a lost person in space. What I mean by this is spatial orientation. And the thing that really struck me was I, in the podcast, they said he had to be driven around town, that he couldn't drive a car. Correct. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you, I, I, I drive very easily, as most surgeons do, because it's like, it's like second nature, but how can you not be able to drive to work? I mean... Yeah, I don't know. I, my take on that, because that came up multiple times, um, was that I just think he, he um, could never focus on one thing for a long period of time. And, uh, mm. and he'd probably go off daydreaming about whatever. And remember, he was an MD-PhD. Mm-hmm. And so uh, his training, I think, got compromised because of that. He was very active in his research during his residency, during the time between his residency and his fellowship, and during his fellowship. And uh, we could find records only of just less than 100 cases that he participated in, 100 surgical cases he participated in during his five years of his residency. Wow. A hundred cases, and then you then you got down to how many of those were uh, related to the lumbar spine, and how many weren't related to trauma, and it was literally just like twelve cases. I mean, you have to actively be avoiding the OR to do that. Oh, absolutely. For seven years, how is that possible? Well, that's that's a good question. People are always worried about 
being perceived the wrong way in this world today, being canceled all that. And, you know, you really put yourself out there. And, and you know, despite Alec Baldwin's um, current problems, I think he played you very well. He, 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 when I met you here, it struck me that you have a, you have a, you have a compelling personality. And, and you, can, you can feel it, right? When you see people, you, you, when you see a surgeon, I always, tell, I always tell patients, if you meet a surgeon and they're super sickly sweet nice, I'm not sure that person is actually a very good surgeon. Like if you meet a Navy SEAL and they're like too nice. Right. I, I don't mean not a good person. I mean if they're like, their emotive elements are like that, right? And when I, when I met you, I was like this, it's like, what is it? Like the thousand yard stare. It's like, I know that you've seen a lot. You've done a lot. And you're a human, right? Because you can't, the other thing is there's a sociopath neurosurgeon. There's, we're on the scale of sociopathy. We are on that scale. And to be able to hurt people, then come back and learn from it and keep going and not give up, you need to be a little, just a touch, not too empathetic. Absolutely. And that's important where you never get good. But there are people that, are, that, that they mask it so well. And many of those, I'm a spine surgeon, many of the cranial people who they have a lot of morbidity and a lot of mortality, they have to have that. And it's like they'll, they'll just eat dinner or lunch after someone dies on the table. And it's like, I'm like, how do you do that? Like, I'm a spine surgeon. It's so, hard for me, you know? Right. Now, these are good surgeons. They, they, they have the ethics, but they have to wall it off, compartmentalize something, Correct. right? Correct. But when you met him, I remember reading about this, that there was something about him that was sort of icy, a little bit, something especially reptilian or something like that, right? Uh, well, that wasn't me. Oh, that wasn't you. Okay, uh, that no. was the, 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 uh, the other I surgeon. never personally met uh, oh, Christopher okay. Dutch. Did in the movie. Okay, but I, but I didn't uh, in real life. Oh, okay. And uh, so that was a little literary license that was taken in the movie. I see. That was the other spine surgeons, the other neurosurgeons. The other vascular surgeon uh, had operated with him uh, oh, okay. at least one time and met him a couple of times at the same hospital uh-huh. that they were working at. So, uh, and that was portrayed very, very, very well. They had, uh, in fact, there are two ask, uh, access surgeons who had worked with them that were portrayed in the movie. And actually, that was pretty realistic mm. and uh, accurate. So they combined all of those people into one character in the, in the drama. Correct. Okay, I see. Correct. Um, but he... Uh, I mean, obviously, he was on the spectrum someplace. He was, uh, he was a sociopath that he, I think evolved into a uh, psychopath. Mm-hmm. And uh, the most interesting comment that I got throughout this whole process regarding Dutch was the uh, assistant DA, Michelle Sugar, after the trial, was speaking with the defense attorney for Dr. Dutch. And... Uh, he said, Dr. Dunch didn't know that he was a bad surgeon until literally Thursday, which was the day, the next to the last day of the trial. And uh, after everybody had testified, uh, both the physicians and the, and the patients had testified, he said, well, maybe I'm not that good a surgeon. Wow, that's, a, that's quite the statement. Yeah. Do you think that was something real or something he was just saying? No, I think it was real. I think it was absolutely real. I mean, can people like this be reformed or not? No. And that was, that was the reason I was so glad that he got put away for life because uh, that was a characteristic that not only could he hurt and damage and kill people from a medical standpoint, 
that he could cause incredible misery in society in whatever role he was playing and he needed to be removed from society. So I think the, I think the right punishment came out. Yeah, I mean, I, when I've listened to this podcast and watched that series a couple times. As I, as, I, as I mentioned to you, I thank you again for doing this. It's part of the inspiration for John Paul, who's my co-host, and me doing this because we felt like, in, on the one hand, spine surgeons in particular are being represented very poorly to millions of listeners, and we're already in the crosshairs. But on the other hand, there is this thing, and look, I've had patients die after surgery. I've had complications. I have patients who don't get better, obviously, right? There's a certain percentage of those people and they're in pain and, and you know, not everybody that's passed through my hands thinks I'm a wonderful person because of that, right? And that's the nature of spine Correct. to some degree. But then there's a, there's a band, like it's not 80% of my patients, you know, it is, it is a very small percentage. Um, and then I try to make right with them. I try my best and it's not always possible in life to do that and it, it exacts a toll on us. But we see a lot of folks out there, and, and I, I don't want to name names of people because obviously it's not my role, and we're worried about what they're doing, even in our local community, even our graduates. And every program has this, right? And they worry, and, and, and we worry about it, and then there's no way to discipline or monitor or whatever, right? There's, and, and we're afraid because part of it is a fear, and I'll be very honest, part of the fear is, well, if they're going to bring up a case of, if I bring up a case of doctor so-and-so doing this case, he could always find a case of mine that would be like, well, Dr. Wang sure. did this, right? So there is this kind of fear, and, and patients think it's a conspiracy, but it's not really a conspiracy. It's more like, we don't know where that line is. Correct. And I also, as an extenuation of that thought process, um, what we're talking about is transparency. Mm-hmm. And uh, no surgeon is perfect. No surgeon will ever be perfect, well, at least for the next several hundred years. Um, and we all have our mistakes, we all have our accidents, we all have our misjudgments. Um, and some of them rise to a much higher level than others. But there are some that we've determined should be reportable and some that don't need to be reportable. And uh, one of the things that, and, and when we say reportable, that means, that means recordable in, a, in an area where they can be assessed again, other, either by other physicians, mm-hmm. by uh, malpractice liability companies, by hospital credentialing staffs, etc. We have the National Practitioner Data Bank, which was formed in just like 1995, I think, by Congress, and that can serve a really good purpose, except right now, nobody has access to it. Mm-hmm. Only the physician himself can query about himself, credentialing uh, professionals in the hospital staff uh, can query the database. Um, some liability companies can um, query the database. And only a couple of large uh, healthcare organizations can query the database. Mm-hmm. Public can't query the database. So, and it was interesting, Dr. Dunch, even though he had two years of, of, of just disasters, um, by the time he went to trial, that wasn't two years, 
It was five years before he went to trial. He had two years of active practice with, um, you know, 35 disastrous cases. The, I, the day before he went, the, his trial started, I looked him up online, mm -hmm. and he had a pristine uh, history. Yeah, sure. Right. Plus, he's early in his career. That's yeah. the other thing, right? Yeah. You can look at a senior surgeon, they've had problems because they've been in practice for right. 40 years. But it, was, it had been five years from the time he came to Dallas till the time he had his trial and was convicted. Well, wow. So. Bob, I want to be respectful of your time because the meeting is going on. I don't want to pull you away from it too much, but I want to say on behalf of of your local community, on behalf of the neurosurgical community, on behalf of the spine community, and this entire country. Through, and for those of you who are listening who do not know who I'm talking to, please understand that Dr. Bob Henderson, through his, I want to say heroic efforts, I don't, I don't use that word lightly like people do nowadays, um, through great personal risk to not only your reputation, but even maybe to your life, you took this on. You were, you were a bit of a pit bull about it, which was important. And I think because of that, I, it's not an overestimation or overreach to say you probably saved dozens, if not maybe hundreds of lives of Americans. So I, I want to thank you for that and, and, and give you the opportunity to give a closing message to our listeners, many of whom are in training or want to be neurosurgeons. Yeah. Uh, number one, uh, going into medicine uh, is a noble profession. And uh, it needs to be the reason that you go into medicine. Um, you need to you need to love it, and uh, and when you if you do, and when you do, and if you persist in doing that, you'll find the thing that you like the most, and you will pursue that area, and you'll become uh, extremely proficient at it, and. Always, my, my basic belief from very early on in my training um, was that if you keep the patient first, if everything you do is centered around the patient and what's good for the patient, uh, everything else falls into place. And if the system was designed to do that, it would solve many of the ongoing issues that we have right now. But um, if, if we get the right people to keep going into medicine for the right reasons, um, the system itself will uh, improve to a much greater degree than where it has at this point in time. Well, that's a great message to our listeners. So thank you again, Bob, for your time and um, look forward to meeting you again at the next Selby Spine. Yeah, enjoyed it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.